All right. Well, as um, Sigvi mentioned, we're going to have a variety of people talking over the next uh, few months. So this will be kind of an interesting um, experiment here. Um, so I'll be talking a little bit about the cosmic conflict in the Old Testament here this morning. Uh, next week, Dorothy, my wife Dorothy, uh, who's also a neurologist at the VA, will be talking about uh, God's kingdom. Then we're going to have several other speakers, David Werner, Gerald Whitehouse, and uh, I'm not sure how it's all going to turn out, but as Sigvius said, we're, we're trying to use this class as a little bit of a laboratory, a discussion group for cosmic conflict kind of issues. And um, so we've spent a long time in the New Testament, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the Old Testament today. And in the Bible study that I have with the medical students, we've been uh, three years now in the Old Testament, and we're just a couple weeks away from finishing. So I'm kind of excited to get into the New Testament. So I've had a chance here to kind of think about this for a while. And this is a, a slide that Sigvi's used several times. And his approach, which, which I have found uh, very helpful, is that, you know, we tend to think of things just in this dimension. There's God and us. And it all relates to God and us and everything that is happening. That's the only part of the equation. And um, as he has really tried to bring out in, in Revelation, and I think in almost all of his talks, the, the non-human dimension, that we incorporate a cosmic conflict and how that is helpful for understanding our world, the way, why our world is the way it is. And so we're going to try to approach this in the Old Testament, which uh, I put question mark here in the title slide because do we really see the cosmic conflict in the Old Testament? You know, Satan's only mentioned three times in the Old Testament. So you could make a case, well, we, we don't really see much of it there. So that's our subject. Because um, what we really see, you know, in the books of Moses and in, in a lot of the Old Testament, we see God doing everything and God responsible for everything. We'll, I'll give some examples of that. And even out of proportion to you know, the, the human consequence of sin. God does it. And certainly then the non-human aspect seems uh, quite diminished uh, in many places in the Old Testament. So that's kind of our challenge. And I want to use 1 Samuel as just a little uh, snapshot to illustrate this. Because 1 Samuel, boy, does God do it all in 1 Samuel. And I'll just give some examples here. Hannah, you know, who uh, couldn't have a child, and we have a description of this, that the Lord had kept her childless. Okay, and when she's able to have a child, and here's, here's the description. And again, is, is God being responsible for this? The Lord kills and restores to life. He sends people to the world of the dead and brings them back again. He makes some people poor and others rich. He humbles some and makes others great. And God does it all. Some people he makes poor, some people he makes rich, some people he would choose not to have children, and then he would uh, make them have children, but, but God does it all. Okay, that's not the most challenging part of 1 Samuel, though. It, it gets, uh, gets worse. So we read about Eli and his two foolish sons. And Eli was very old. He kept hearing about everything his sons were doing to the Israelites and that they were even sleeping with the women who worked at the entrance to the tent of the Lord's presence. And so he rebuked them. He, he tried to get them turned around. Why are you doing these things? But they wouldn't listen to their father. Why? For the Lord had decided to kill them. Okay, do we have a, do we have a problem with understanding it that way? We know what really happened is, remember that these two sons, they, they tried to use the covenant box as a good luck charm, and they took it out into battle, and it was captured, and they were killed. 
Okay, is this the is this the, the best way to express it here? The Lord decided to kill them. Well, how about this? Saul. We read that the Lord's spirit left Saul, and an evil spirit sent by the Lord tormented him. Okay, does God send evil spirits? And this is not just one time. There's many times here in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel 18, the next day an evil spirit from God suddenly took control of Saul, and he raved in his house like a madman. Okay, again, we have God here. God's spirit was with Saul, but then it left Saul, and then God is the one that sent an evil spirit to torment him. Okay, these are challenging verses. One of many other examples here. One day an evil spirit from the Lord took control of Saul. He was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was there playing his harp, and uh, you know the story. But, but we're trying to grapple with this. That's why the Old Testament, for many, is, is such a daunting prospect. We'd rather just you know, stick with the New Testament. We don't have God sending evil spirits on people uh, in the New Testament. Well, you remember the story of uh, Nabal, who was very mean to David, even though David was you know, protecting him, in a sense, and uh, he turned him away. And so Abigail, his wife, remember, kind of appeased David's wrath, came out with all the figs and other things. And uh, then here's the description. Abigail went back to Nabal, who was at home having a feast fit for a king. He was drunk and in a good mood. So she did not tell him anything until the next morning. And then after he had sobered up, she told him everything. He suffered a stroke and was completely paralyzed. Okay, that's kind of interesting for me as a neurologist. Suffered a stroke, was completely paralyzed. Try to localize the lesion here, but anyway. And then some 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Now, there aren't too many strokes, actually, that will completely paralyze someone. And so if we're just trying to do neurology here, and the most common thing would be a large stroke in the ponds, which is a devastating stroke. Mortality is about 80%. Okay, but uh, here, the way that the story is told, poor Nabal, beyond the 80% mortality from such a stroke, that wasn't it. It was that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Okay? Um, Now, this is very interesting. As David considered, how would Saul die? Okay, this was how he put it together. By the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul. Okay, how would God kill Saul? either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Now, isn't that interesting? I know that God himself will kill Saul, and here's how it will happen, either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Okay, do we describe things that way? Well, they did back in this time. This is how it will happen. And we know what happened. What happened to Saul? How did he die? Committed suicide, right? Fell on his sword. And you read on the description, so the Lord killed him. Thus God slew Saul in the the King James. Okay? Um, How do we understand God's involvement in the death of Saul? So again, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that we have throughout the Old Testament... You know, it's just God does it all. God's responsible for all. God sends evil spirits. God slew Saul. Um, All of these kinds of examples. And so we have very much God's action in everything that is magnified. Uh, The human consequence of sin 
is uh, certainly in, in the books of Moses and early on in the New Testament, even that part is diminished. And we have almost nothing of the, the non-human, the, the cosmic conflict aspect to all this. Okay, so I want to get your input, but let me just give you one more uh, first here. You know, you would think in the, in the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, that's, that's one place we wouldn't get anything that is just a slight, slightly misleading. But, but here in Exodus 20, do not bow down to any idol or worship it, because I am the Lord your God. I tolerate no rivals. I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Um, and again, how do we understand this? We had a little bit of a catastrophe this morning with not able to find my laptop for, for this presentation. And so when bad things happen to us, do we think, well, it's probably something my great-great-grandfather did, and then the Lord is um, punishing down to the third and the fourth generation? Not because something I did, okay, but because, again, some, someone in my family perhaps was an enemy of God, and God is visiting that down to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so um, now that I've, I've thrown some verses out at you, um, let me just ask... Um, as, as people, I'm sure, that have thought about this, how do we understand these kinds of verses? Do you have any, uh, any suggestions, any help for God sending evil spirits and, and so on? Yes, hold on just for a second. Yeah, did you all hear that? It, and I think that's true, that God in the Old Testament is often described as doing what he allows to occur, definitely. Would this, uh, would this diminish our view of inspiration? If we're reading a text that clearly says God did it, and then we're, are we just doing fancy footwork here to explain it another way? Yes? Well, I think Genesis 3 helps us to understand that we live already in foreign territory. So basically where we live is the world of the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so basically when good things happen or when, when God's presence is there, to a certain degree we are protected. But when he leaves us to our choices, we are in foreign territory. We mm-hmm. are at a place where, where Satan rules. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can, through our choices, deliberately remove ourselves from that zone mm-hmm. where we are under the worship of, of God. Mm-hmm. And then we are subject to the other forces that can play out. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. And I guess my question is, uh, why isn't that stated more clearly? You know, even the story in Genesis that we like to talk about a lot, uh, you know, there's, there's a serpent, but he's not named. Um, and uh, so uh, why, why is it expressed um, this way? But, but I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, Tony has. How dangerous would it be to presume that the writers um, had a simplified view how the world couldn't work. And that God was responsible. I'm particularly struck by the verse you chose from Samuel where it says, God's going to kill Saul, whether it be by natural death he causes, or in battle. How could God have caused it if he died in battle, unless God died in the sphere? How could God have caused it if he died in natural? What does natural mean? God caused it. So it seems as if the, the writers assumed that God was in control of everything and had a simplified view. Everything flowed from him, whether we wanted it 
consider it, quote, natural or not, there's always God in this uh, lamp. So God, what God allowed, God caused. So uh, maybe they just use words and phrases that um, we would feel comfortable with today. Yeah, I think that's a good comment. And, uh, you know, it, it, again, kind of gets to the subject of inspiration, which is which is kind of a touchy subject. But I think I think your, your point is, is very important. Yeah. Uh, if I may, this kind of seems reminiscent of the view of God that we see in Deuteronomy. Like um, Moses' famous speech to the children of Israel right before he dies, where he asked them, you know, choose this way, choose life. Um, choose to follow God's rules and you'll be blessed. And if you don't choose these things, then all these terrible things are going to happen to you. Um, interestingly enough, we start to see that view being progressed or changed, such as in Job, um, with Job's friends, who very much take that position, well, you must have done something wrong. This is why these terrible things are happening to you. This is the understanding of God that we have. Um, it seems reminiscent of that. Uh, I might even go a little bit further and say that perhaps God is not just assuming um, responsibility for everything, but these are even perhaps natural laws. Say in sociobiology, uh, evolution has been trying, evolutionists have been trying to explain why we have virtues that we do. And basically they've come, they're starting to say that virtue is advantageous and that more virtuous groups should precipitate and actually outcompete um, groups that are more selfish or egocentric or things like that. So there may even be uh, natural laws. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and actually, um, is there a punishment to the third and fourth generation? Um, I mean, if, uh, you know, if I'm an alcoholic and I beat my kids every single night, is there a consequence? Down to the third and the fourth generation, uh, I think I think uh, we we can see that, and, and actually scientifically, we can say yes, this is actually a rule. And and the one other thought I had just on on what you said there is, you know, as a parent for immature children, um, and if your kids want to, I don't know, run out into the street and play or whatever, will you threaten? Daddy will punish. Um, that that maybe even in their minds, the only reason not to play in the street is I don't want to make dad upset. And uh, so you, you may speak a way uh, to people at a time of immaturity that will kind of, you know, reach them where they are. Yeah, Harvey. God speaks in the world, through the worldview. Um, the Greeks had a much more sophisticated cause-effect logic. If he had spoken to the Hebrews in the cause-effect logic of the Greek, the Hebrews would not understand what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. So he talked in the language, in the worldview of the human, which was God is the cause of everything. Mm-hmm. God is the primary cause. Mm-hmm. And it's manifest. So whether one had a trivial illness and got better, God healed. Uh, no, no credit to the immune system. No credit to what the antibodies have been building up over uh, months and years and so forth. Um, I think they have to allow people to write with their worldview. It doesn't mean that their worldview reflects God's worldview. That's where I think we have to be careful. Right next to you there, there's a comment. Causative factors of whatever happens. We were exposed within recent months to another culture in which our close Adventist friend's wife died inexplicably in a culture where they basically do not do autopsies. This man, who we have known for 25 years or so, 
well-educated, educated physician, etc., is convinced that his wife died, basically because of a curse by her siblings because of jealousy that she is married as well as she had and that they have a loving, loving relationship. And although he is a fellow activist, and I believe a godly professional, there is no convincing him that that was not the cause of his wife's death. So, you know, and that culture demands to know why. You know, it can't just be, well, she has some inexplicable illness, we're in the land of the devil, there's microbes and there's viruses and bacteria. This is a, a, a part of the psyche, apparently, of that culture, that there has to be some causative, even human, agent. Yeah, it reminds me of a patient I saw several years ago who um, uh, developed very bad headaches in her 40s. And I tried several medications and nothing was working and uh, was kind of embarrassed on the third or fourth visit to have not gotten to what was going on in her life when the headaches began, which was her son driving to college, first year college student, was killed. And her view was that this was God's call, this was God's decision. And yet she was very religious, I mean, continued to go to church. And, and I think the, the dilemma for her was, I, I'm worshiping God, good God, and yet I think this is what God did. And, and there's, there was such a, uh, so difficult to, to reconcile those two things. So I think it, it can be very harmful, you know, for our picture of God if, if we're seeing God in that, in that way. Um, and, and you could, I guess, say, I mean, isn't, isn't God all-powerful? Does God have a power? deficiency. Um, so even in the death of Saul, I mean, wouldn't God have had the opportunity? Couldn't he have stepped in and intervened? Um, and so we need to discuss, then, why doesn't God intervene often in a lot of these things um, that go on? Well, the point I would uh, like to make, and, and this seems true to me, um, looking uh, looking through, yeah, one more comment. Go ahead. I'm just ready to bring up the idea of progressive revelation when you look at the whole scope from Genesis through. Yeah, right. And I, I completely, uh, I, I like that thought very much. You know, you have someone like Samson dying. Remember his dying words were, God, give me strength so that I can get even with my enemies for putting my eyes out. It's quite a contrast from Jesus dying on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. You know, and then and it's so remarkable as you read about people of faith in Hebrews 11 and there's Samson. You know, it seems like quite a contrast from, from Jesus. And so I think, yeah, Jesus has to be our, our pinnacle. We kind of filter everything through the life and death of Jesus. Um, you know, I was impressed this last time going through the Old Testament that as you read on, certainly from the books of Moses and on to the <clears throat> major prophets in the Old Testament, that there is much progressively, much more emphasis on human responsibility and natural consequence um, for sin, and not so much God doing everything. Um, and I'll just give you a couple examples. We just read in, uh, in the Old Testament how God punishes the children for the sins of the parents. Okay, but then Ezekiel <clears throat> would seem to be kind of a, a contradiction to that. The Lord spoke to me and said, what is this proverb people keep repeating in the land of Israel? And the proverb is that the parents ate the sour grapes, but the children got the sour taste. So the, the parents sinned, the kids are the ones that, that get punished for it. As surely as I am the living God, says the sovereign Lord, you will not repeat this proverb in Israel anymore. The person who sins is the one who will die. And this, this goes on, it's repeated like four times here in Ezekiel 18, 
Uh, A son is not to suffer because of his father's sins, nor a father because of the sins of his son. Good people will be rewarded for doing good. Evil people will suffer for the evil they do. If someone evil stops sinning and keeps my laws, if he does what is right and good, he will not die. He will certainly live. All his sins will be forgiven and he will live because he did what is right. And so the, the emphasis here is very much on the individual personal responsibility and that God does not arbitrarily punish the children uh, for the sins of the parent. And um, so much of this comes out in uh, Jeremiah. Um, again, the human responsibility, and in here kind of emphasizing the, the natural consequence for rebellion. In Jeremiah 2, the Lord says, What accusation did your ancestors bring against me? What made them turn away from me? And notice here, they worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And so that, you know, again, be very careful what we worship because that, that has a natural effect. We, we tend to become like the God we love, worship, and admire. And, and so, again, this would be describing uh, a natural result rather than God arbitrarily deciding to, to do something to us for foolish behavior. And here in Jeremiah 4, Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived and by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. Again, so here, the, very much the emphasis is not your God gets angry and he does this to you, but your sin has caused the suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. Don't you think we could still take those verses I read as inspired, perhaps rather than inspired doctrine, that an inspired record of God's story, meeting people where they were, and again, that's why Jesus is so critical because, you know, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, all of these things. And Jesus comes along and said, well, you've heard it said this, but now, you know, so, so we do have, uh, someone mentioned that, that progressive revelation, you know, that, that does build up to Jesus. Well, so there is that. And so what I want to kind of talk about here in this talk is, well, so, so we've said, there's God and the human. We've kind of just talked about that dimension. But where do we find the cosmic conflict in the Old Testament? And I'll just give you one more uh, verse on this here in Second Samuel. Of kind of, again, God doing everything. That the Lord was angry at Israel again. And he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. Um, or other translations. He incited or provoked David. He stirred him up. He caused him to think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel. And then he would go on and blame David for, for giving the census. Okay, so uh, we know that God does not tempt to evil, right? I mean, we like to quote James. We must not say this temptation comes from God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he tempts no one. Okay, so uh, again, this is, uh, would, would seem to be more of the same for what we've talked about. But here we have just a, a remarkable uh, counterverse. Because this is told in 2 Samuel, we get the same story, same census, told in in Chronicles. And now it is Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel. So he made David decide to take a census. So, again, you were talking about inspiration. Here we, well, how do we reconcile these two? You know, it's, it's the same story. And here we have God, as, as Sigvi always says, as the acting subject in 2 Samuel, and we have Satan as the acting subject as the story is told in, in 1 Chronicles. 
Well, maybe this is just a little glimpse. I mentioned that Satan's only mentioned three times in the Old Testament. This is one of them here in First Chronicles. And uh, so the, the illustration, the reason I think this is so helpful, um, I haven't seen very many murder mystery movies, but I remember seeing one in high school that I happened to see twice. And I, I never like to watch a movie twice. But, um, you know, the first time, of course, you, you think you know who did it and you find out you're wrong in the end. And then you watch it a second time. And all of a sudden, now you pick up on things, you know, that you'd really missed in the first, uh, in the first uh, viewing of the movie. And I think that that should kind of be our approach to the Bible, which very much amplifies very little that's in your face, cosmic conflict in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's everywhere. I mean, you, you just can't read very far. And the whole book of Revelation is cosmic conflict. Okay, so we have to go back and read the Old Testament, I think, and to try to try to catch glimpses of it. And I think it does provide helpful uh, dimensions. So just very quickly here, what happened to Satan in the Old Testament? Again, we've got the serpent in the tree, and we like to look back on that and say, no question, that's Satan. But again, it doesn't say that in the Old Testament. It's just, it's just a serpent. Okay, Why is it? And, and I've been quoting Alden Thompson quite a bit here recently with the medical students, but I, I like... I appreciate his approach to this problem. Why is there a relative absence of Satan? And he would say that the nations surrounding Israel were polytheistic, worshiping many gods. In a polytheistic culture, the good things are attributed to the good gods, bad things to the evil ones. And those evil deities could be so volatile that humans were constantly brewing up incantations and magic rituals to placate them. The great danger for Israel lay in the temptation to worship Satan as another god. And those false gods, when you read about them, um, like Moloch and so on, I mean, you can't invent a more cruel god. You know, they would heat up the hot metal hands and then put the babies in there. I mean, child sacrifice. And so, again, the great danger was to worship Satan as another god. And so rather than just forbidding magic and incantation, and of course, God did that, right? He did forbid it. But he went a step further and claimed full responsibility for both good and evil. As a result, throughout most of the pages, the Old Testament portrays God as the active agent in all things. God is the one who causes everything, and Satan simply drops from sight until the very end of the Old Testament. And so we have verses like this, where God is speaking, I create both light and darkness, I bring both blessing and disaster, I, the Lord, do all things. And again, God's claiming responsibility for everything. And the Old Testament. It's a, it's a challenging uh, concept, but I think, again, we're, we're trying to make God and Jesus as one in heart, mind, and character. Uh, we have to use Jesus and look back at the Old Testament and perhaps revisit some of those stories. So the last part of Alden's quote, indeed, only three passages in the entire Old Testament are explicit in the reference to Satan, who was God's great adversary, and all three passages were either written or canonized toward the end of the Old Testament period. So we have that verse in Chronicles. Um, we have God, or we have Satan in uh, Zechariah, remember, accusing Joshua. And uh, then we have Satan, of course, in, in the book of Job. So, again, how, does that, how is that helpful? Uh, again, we use the New Testament, and we read back into the Old Testament. So we see the snake in the tree, and we find out in Revelation, if, if we had any doubt on who that is, uh, Revelation doesn't leave us with any doubt. The huge dragon was thrown out 
Okay, who is, who is that? That ancient serpent. I mean, isn't that, could you make a more direct reference? The ancient serpent. And if we're still not sure, name the devil. And we still have questions. Or Satan, that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. So we were invited to you know, project back and to see very clearly that um, the, the individual that kind of got this whole landslide going in the wrong direction on planet earth was the devil. We read back now to books like Job. And we know, uh, even from the text in Job, this is one of the three references to Satan, that Satan, remember, accused God, Job only obeys you because you bless him, it's unfair. And that Satan went out from the presence of God, and Satan is the one that did all those things to Job. Right? We, we clearly get that from the first two chapters of Job. But again, that wasn't how the people interpreted it. Okay? The witnesses said the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you because, of course, God is the only one that sends fire from heaven. But, but we know from reading Job chapter 1 that Satan left God's presence and he's the one that destroyed Job's family and everything that he had. Um, and if we read to the end of Job, you know, Job never gets introduced to Satan. He never finds out. He was never told about what happened in the heavenly realm. But he is told about this uh, beast And I find it quite interesting to read about Leviathan here, that his pride is invincible. Nothing can make a dent in that pride. Nothing can get through that proud skin, impervious to weapons and weather. When it raises itself up, the gods are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Is this perhaps an illusion? Um, You know, all of this with the pride and so on, and and, um, you know, I, I find it interesting that Leviathan, when he's mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's in Isaiah, that on that day the Lord will use his fierce and powerful sword to punish Leviathan, that slippery snake, that twisting snake. He will kill that monster which lives in the sea. So how many slippery, twisting snakes do we have in the Bible? Again, I think that it may just be a suggestion to Job that kind of the one aspect that you're missing here is there is a, a cosmic opponent. And I won't read these, but we like to read about King of Babylon. And uh, you know, we infer all of that on Satan. But again, I think, I think we have to take the whole Bible um, to, to make that case. But I just find it really important, just for our theology, for our theodicy, that we, you know, that this shining star that was fallen from heaven, just like in uh, Revelation, have been, you have been thrown down to earth And notice, you who destroyed the nations of the world, you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. Um, You know, Satan gets very little credit, very little press for destruction, for the things that go on in our earth. And certainly, a a lot of that is human responsibility and natural consequence. But uh, I don't very often hear the demonic, you know, implicated at all in what goes on in our world. Yes, uh, Gerald. I'm just sitting here wondering why so much was lost. Adam and Eve had opportunity to talk with God himself. You would think that a more complete picture of the conflict and God and his character and how he's dealing in the conflict would have been transmitted to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, do we not realize the extent of the of the uh, deception that that uh, the serpent propagated. Uh, maybe it's Satan's design that he not be mentioned in the Old Testament. Maybe it's part of his deception. 
um, about the whole, all of the issues in the conflict. Um, it, just, it, it just seems like, you know, we should have, should have had a clear picture of the whole conflict and everything right from the beginning. I think that's a great point. I, I think that's why that story, we should try to make so much out of that. What happened at the tree and the deception, which really was about God's goodness, God's view on freedom, God's character, and that, uh, you know, God comes for a walk in the garden and they're hiding in the bushes and uh, they're not afraid of the serpent. You know, they're afraid of God. And then you have the whole Old Testament where, you know, what what's the mark of idolatry, paganism? It's always, we've got to appease a God who's very angry with us. You know, um, I think uh, everything was just twisted around. I wish I could remember that uh, quote, if, if any of you have seen the movie, uh, what is it, uh, Inception, I think, that an idea is a dangerous idea. It's like a parasite. And it, it, uh, you know, but I think the idea that God is really not for us, the idea that God is not like Jesus, I mean, that's, that's very dangerous. And I, I think, uh, you know, Adam and Eve, th- their conception of God was not Jesus Christ when they were in the garden, you know. So I think uh, it's a lot of work to undo that, that false uh, picture. Well, I won't uh, read through this. You're all familiar with Ezekiel 28, king of Tyre. This being who was the model of perfection. You were in Eden. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. But I think reading back now to these passages, or passages in the Old Testament really gives us some important um, insights. But I want to move a little bit here and just to say that the New Testament, you know, you have some things in the Bible that, that seem to, they're talked less and less about as, as things move through the pages. The cosmic conflict theme is amplified through the Bible. The, you know, the, the first thing, that happens. Jesus is baptized, and we have the words of the Father, you are my dearly loved son, you bring me great joy. And so he has baptized, and then the Spirit compelled or drove Jesus into the wilderness, where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And so the first thing we have is a beginning of Jesus' ministry is an encounter with Satan. And again, it's, it's kind of like uh, at the tree, isn't it? God says, you are my dearly loved son. And the devil said, if you are the Son of God. There's just a little implied doubt. Just to try to get you know, his foot in the door just a little bit. If. Okay, and the temptation was, you know, use your power selfishly. Do something for yourself. You know, create this uh, breakfast spread here on this rock. And of course, Jesus never used his power selfishly. And then Revelation, which is, again, we want to talk about a theme that's amplified. You know, we have an image of God, we have an image of the adversary that is just pounded through every chapter in Revelation. So the the cosmic conflict theme is something that gets deeper and deeper and and richer in meaning. And then we have to go back and and read that through the Old Testament. So again, Sigvi's paradigm here, which is, I think, so helpful here is that, yes, we have God, we have an all-powerful God, but he clearly does not you know, in Jesus, we don't see him using force coercively to try to bring things about in us. We have humans, and humans make mistakes, and we have lots of devastating natural consequences as a result of that. But I think it's very helpful that we see that we are involved in a cosmic conflict, and that there is um, an adversary at work uh, behind the scenes. 
And let me just give you one story in the Old Testament as maybe uh, an illustration of that. So the, the explanatory power of this reading back to the Old Testament. Okay, so you know this story in Numbers 21 where the people have rebelled again and again and again and again and they want to go back to Egypt. So the Israelites left Mount Hor, but on the way the people lost their patience and spoke against God and Moses. They complained, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the desert where there is no food or water? We can't stand any more of this miserable food. Okay, and again, just like all those 1 Samuel passages, then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. So it's always the question, how far do you take this, right? But uh, what do you think? Do we want to take this? uh, Did God send the snakes, or how how do we understand that? Yes. Ellen Hunt, I believe, says the snakes were indigenous and even God's protection would have prevented the king's snakes prior to this and during the whole sojourn from invading. Good, so you stole my next slide, but uh, yeah, there was a, Dorothy, there was a question right over here. Seems we are assuming that the Israelite understood God. I, mean, I really feel that they have a very vague understanding of God based on the civilization were around them. They were more advanced civilizations. And this goes way back to the Antediluvians, the story of creation and the story of the flood and so on and so forth. It was the gods who sat down and conspired. Satan was not there. Mm-hmm. It was the gods who caused the flood and uh, so on. And it goes on and on uh, during the time of Israel, during this wilderness period, which was supposed to be an educational experience, but they didn't learn really much because as soon as they entered the land of Canaan, they began to look at the more advanced civilizations and their gods. And they felt that, well, if we worship a god, that god is responsible to take care of us. Uh, they looked at the Canaanites and uh, their fertile lands and the uh, wealth that they had and so on and so forth vis-a-vis their poverty. And they decided that, you know, maybe we should try to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And that's why throughout the history of Israel, especially during the kings, you know, period of the kings, they were basically paying homage to both Baal and their Lord, you know. And uh, that's, that was their understanding of God. Satan was not there. Well, mm-hmm. God brought everything. You remember the story of Sennacherib, for example, when he came to invade Israel, I mean Judah. Uh, he stood outside the gates, outside the city walls, And who did he insult? He insulted actually the God of Israel. He said, your God cannot save you from me, you know. Mm -hmm. Again, the Israelites always looked at how, at the gods of their neighbors. And there were times when they thought that their neighbors' gods were more powerful than their God. So that was their understanding of God. Yeah. Right. Reminds me, uh, there's a verse in Hosea, I think it's Hosea 4, where God says, uh, my people are as stubborn as mules, how can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? 
And so I think uh, what we see in most of the Old Testament is, is God is reaching stubborn mules. And perhaps, you know, we are too, but, uh, you know, he's, he's using methods and words and means to stick with stubborn mules. Um, so, yes, uh, David. Paul, oh, my last comment. Um, you know, we sit here and we look at those ancient, uh, ancient writings, and we sit here in our suits, with our, many of us with our postgraduate uh, degrees, and we're parsing these words and trying to figure this out. But what it really comes down to is what was just said a few moments ago. And when you go out into the real world out there, you talk to the average man on the street, the average woman on the street. They want exactly what was being discussed a moment ago. They want a sugar daddy God, the God that's going to protect them, the God that's going to take care of them. Why God? Why did you let this happen? Why was my mother taken from me by cancer when I was eight years old? Why do these things happen? Why should I believe in you if all these things, if all these bad things happen? When I look at this up on here and it says the Lord sent poisonous snakes in the people, and I go back to few frames. God's right to take responsibility for all these bad things. He is the creator of all things. He created this world. He created the universe. Nothing exists anywhere without God. He did it. Okay? God has to take responsibility for it. Yeah, and I think you, you hit on, you know, if, if we could probably list two or three things that turn people away from God, uh, I mean, we'd make maybe eternally burning hell, uh, the God of the Old Testament, you know, we, we could, theodicy that you mentioned, why do uh, bad things happen to good people? Um, and so I, I think we're, we're getting into some, some areas which are really important. We're going to go out to the world with a message. Uh, well, we need to be able to talk about some of these things because, um, uh, yes, I, I, I agree with you. And then maybe this story illustrates this. The people have basically just said, God, we don't want anything to do with you. Leave us alone. We're going to go back to Egypt. And so God is kind of at this point where, I mean, what, what can he do? He can become the puppet master, right? He could rewire their brains. He could force them. Or he can respect their free choice and he can leave them. You know, and I think it, it kind of gets into that whole free will thing that, that God will do everything he can. But here, again, they told them to take off. And so I think he did. And that's what happened. And you mentioned uh, Ellen White. And uh, maybe just for time, I won't read through this. But she describes how God protected them. He protected them. Their shoes didn't wear out and all of this. And then finally, at this point, he removed his presence. And uh, I just find it interesting that it was snakes that that came in. Um, But anyway, so uh, let me just make a couple of other uh, points here. Uh, I think some things, like we don't have to think of prayer in the setting of a, a cosmic conflict. And just make this point very briefly, but Daniel's prayer, which Sigby read a few months ago, a very moving prayer. Um, and this was in 539 uh, BC, where he prayed about the 70-year prophecy and why aren't we going back to Jerusalem. And then 21 days go by, nothing happened. And then Gabriel comes and says, I've come in answer to your prayer. Okay, well, what's going on? And so, again, Daniel has his prayer, and right after that, there's an edict of Cyrus to return. Okay, it's right in that consequence, or right in that time sequence. And so the description here, if we want cosmic conflict in the Old Testament, here's a good example of it. And this is what the angel tells Daniel. This is what's been going on. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Now, who is the angel prince of Persia? 
that could stand up to Gabriel here for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. Now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia? And after that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear? Who are all of these individuals behind the scene? And there's no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He's responsible for helping and defending me. And uh, I just re really like this story because it's one of the few times we have the curtain pulled back. Okay, you want to know what's going on? Uh, I'll show you what's going on. And we have this, this cosmic dimension with all of these forces. And where was the war being waged? I mean, I think you could say it was, wasn't it within the mind of Cyrus almost to, to issue the decree and a, a cosmic conflict here in the Old Testament. And with regards to prayer, I think we see the same thing here in the New Testament where, uh, remember, Satan entered into Judas when he left the upper room. And then Jesus would say to Peter, Simon, Simon, listen, Satan has received permission to test all of you, to separate the good from the bad as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you turn back to me, kind of knowing you will fail temporarily, when you turn back to me, you must strengthen your brothers. So Jesus' prayer here for Peter, wasn't it kind of in a setting, again, of a cosmic conflict? Okay, uh, the battle was lost for Judas. Okay, but Jesus is praying for Peter in the, in the setting of Satan, who has received permission to tempt all of you. And um, so, again, kind of, kind of like Daniel. So, um, I want to just get through the last uh, couple uh, points here, that uh, we tend to kind of diminish the role of Satan to Halloween and Ouija boards and, and things like that, which I think really trivializes what is really going on here in the cosmic conflict, where Satan can disguise himself to look like an angel of light. I, I, I think he would much rather, the, the deception is it's, it's imitative, and not more, more in that direction. And I think as Seventh-day Adventists, uh, we, we're so much, I think, uh, maybe inclined towards that direction, or we should be. I mean, we have a whole series, the Cosmic Conflict, Conflict of the Ages series, you know, in the last book, The Great Controversy. And that we understand not only that there's a cosmic conflict, but what is the issue in the cosmic conflict. So the words of Ellen White, from the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God, that he might secure them to himself. Hence he has sought to misrepresent the character of God. That's certainly what, what he did at the tree. To lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself as arbitrary, severe, and unforgiving, that he might be feared, shunned, even hated by men. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. That not so much we just say, yes, there is a cosmic conflict, but if we really believe that the central issue is God's character, and that when the adversary acts, he acts to try to distort our picture of God, to paint him as arbitrary, Severe, unforgiving. So whenever I hear descriptions of God as arbitrary, severe, or unforgiving, um, you know, it should maybe some bells and whistles should go off. Um, yeah, maybe I won't read this one, but uh, just a last uh, point here. I, I actually brought this uh, today. I never knew my grandmother. She died before I was born. But this is an 1888 uh, version here of this book. And I just want to kind of notice here that all in the same font, the Great Controversy Between Christ and Satan. There's the, the title uh, of the book there. Now, the book that I had growing up, I remember in our house, it's just uh, The Great Controversy. 
And when I was a call porter in high school, I went around and sold these books, and it was called The Triumph of God's Love. It's a beautiful phrase, The Triumph of God's Love. But I, I show this just to kind of illustrate that it seems to me that we are really not known. I, I mean, I think our distinctive message is really the cosmic conflict that revolves around God's character. And uh, I think we have kind of lost that as a distinctive message that we as Adventists are known for. We're known for lots of things, vegetarianism and longevity, and maybe those things aren't bad. But, uh, you know, have you ever had someone say, oh, you're an Adventist. You guys are all about the cosmic conflict in God's character. I I don't think uh, there's much of that. And, um, you know, uh, Sigvi's whole thing, I mean, when we went through Revelation, how many times did we say, who is the acting subject in this passage? Well, how do Adventists now interpret the trumpet sequence, the plague sequence, you know, we're back to, again, God is the acting subject. God does it all. There isn't even an emphasis on human, uh, human consequence and that, that some of this is happening because of our rebellion, and there certainly isn't a, a description, at least in our textbooks that are out there now, of the adversary and the trumpets and the plague sequences. So I think uh, we really do well to kind of get back to um, some some core issues about what we're about. And I think we we can meet the world with things that are really relevant. I mean, the whole theodicy issue, these things, uh, I think the cosmic conflicts gives us some good things to say about God in that setting. All right, thanks for coming. And so uh, next week, uh, we'll we'll meet here again, and, and Dorothy will give a presentation.